Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast released on a day that is neither the day nor the week that I said it would be released on. A couple of programming notes first. In the first episode of the podcast, I said that I was hoping to do one episode a week and see how it goes, but I wasn't sure I'd be able to keep up with it, especially when jumping around between really disparate times and places. So we're going to get through these next probably three episodes, and then I have a plan to try and make things work on a weekly basis. I'll explain more about that at the end of these episodes. Secondly, as you may have guessed from the episode title, this isn't going to be a light-hearted topic. But the first two episodes should be okay in terms of how grim the content is. I'll let you know if there's anything that you might want to skip. Relatedly, I have a big long list of potential topics to cover, and there's a lot of dark stuff on there. But researching each of those topics is grim, and it's grim to hear about too. But it's also super important stuff. My plan is to do a much more light-hearted topic after each dark topic, for the sake of everyone's sanity. Now, as is frequently the case, when I began to research this topic, I intended to cover one thing, and ended up finding other stories just chronologically prior that are also relevant to this podcast's theme. In this instance, I was planning to cover what happened to literature under the Khmer Rouge, but in the course of researching that, I came across another story about things that happened leading up to the Khmer Rouge's brutal rule. So that's what today's episode is going to be about. And with that said, it's time to get into historical context. Cambodia has, over several centuries, frequently been invaded and occupied by Vietnam and Thailand. In the 19th century, there had been four incursions and an occupation by Thailand, and another occupation by Vietnam. In the 19th century, Europe was still doing colonialism, and France had a particular presence in Southeast Asia. This included Cambodia's neighbour, Vietnam. This led to increased French interest in Cambodia as their presence in Vietnam grew. Cambodia had been under joint Thai and Vietnamese protection since 1846, when the two countries agreed to share Cambodia to avoid further conflicts, though Thailand seems to have been more involved in Cambodian affairs. As they had done over the course of their prior invasions, it was the Vietnamese and Thais who had chosen Cambodia's ruler, King Duong. And I'm sorry about pronunciation here, I'm doing my best, but there aren't that many sources online um, that give pronunciations for these names, and those that do exist generally give the Vietnamese pronunciation rather than the Cambodian or Khmer pronunciation, so I'm doing my best. Duang died in 1860, and a man called Norodom is appointed as the new king. But Norodom is not particularly popular in some areas of Cambodia, and flees back to Thailand in 1861 to return at the end of the next year with Thai support. But having Thai support to help him return doesn't mean he super loves all the meddling that Thailand is doing. He flirts with the French and signs a treaty with France in 1863, in which they would offer protection in exchange for mineral exploration rights and timber concessions. Norodom keeps this treaty secret from the Thais for a few months, and when they find out, he immediately backtracks and reassures Thailand that he totally relies on and appreciates their support. 
Thailand, in turn, keeps this secret from the French until 1864. After this, the French and the Thais magnanimously come to an agreement to co-sponsor Norodom as king, and he's finally crowned later in 1864. In 1867, the French forced the occupiers out and essentially got Norodom to sign a treaty making Cambodia an independent French protectorate, i.e. it becomes a French colony. Also in the 1860s, the city of Angkor is brought to global attention through the expeditions of Henri Wu, who was exploring the area around the Ton Le Sap Lake. Wu did not discover Angkor. It was never lost. Cambodians knew where it was, and they knew stories of the time that were handed down as folktales. Wu wasn't even the first European to visit Angkor, but it was his visit that brought it to prominence as a cultural site. You've probably heard of Angkor Wat. If you've seen Cambodia's national flag, Angkor Wat is the building on the middle stripe. It's a temple complex from the 12th century. The city of Angkor was abandoned in the 15th century in favour of a more defensible location. Despite not discovering Angkor, Moore and the subsequent archaeological attention the site received brought Angkor and that time period of Cambodian history to the forefront of Khmer national identity, and over the years unfavourable comparisons would be made between the contemporary state of the Khmer people compared to what it had been in the medieval period. The monuments of the Angkor kingdom, along with hundreds of stone inscriptions, archives and libraries, gave national pride a distinct focus and also revealed that Cambodia had the longest thriving written record in a Southeast Asian country. Today, the work of archaeologists in mapping the site has shown it to be the largest pre-industrial city in the world. A translation of one of the stone inscriptions, written in Sanskrit between 1190 and 1200 CE, has revealed it to be a poem composed by the Angkor queen Indra Devi. She is celebrated as one of Cambodia's first women poets. Notwithstanding Moore's archaeological endeavours, the Cambodian people were generally not thrilled with the French protection, and especially not with the amount of Vietnamese control, caused by the fact that the French had filled many government positions with Vietnamese recruits rather than Cambodians. Apart from disliking the French, King Norodom's rule also roused the ire of many. He was authoritarian, he governed haphazardly, with a focus on self-interest. Revolts against his rule break out in 1866 and the 1870s. Because Norodom ruled under the control of the French, disapproval of his government was intrinsically tied to disapproval of the French regime. The French managed to put these rebellions down, but it wasn't easy because the rebels had popular support. Over the next decade, French control of Cambodia continued to tighten, and in 1884, the French forced Norodom to sign another treaty handing over more power to them, giving them control over taxes, government revenue, and public works. Norodom wasn't happy about signing it, but he saw it as the only way he could keep power. His half-brother, Sisowath, was waiting in the wings, ready to take his place, should the French decide to replace Norodom. The national response to this treaty was a nationwide rebellion in 1885. Luckily for Norodom's desire to stay in power, the French need him to put down the rebellion, 
and in July 1886, Norodom tells the rebels that if they stop fighting and lay down their arms, things will pretty much go back to the way they were before. No reprisals. After this, the French continue to strengthen their grip by surrounding Norodom with advisers who were loyal to them. As we all know, colonial powers only have the best interests of their colonies in mind, which is why the French stoked the resentment between Cambodians and Vietnamese by mocking the Cambodians as lazy and unreliable and filling the government with Vietnamese rather than Cambodian members. Finally, in 1887, the French decided to merge Vietnam and Cambodia into one entity called Indochina. A few years later, Laos and a small Chinese territory joined the crew. Shockingly, this is not popular with Cambodians. And even more shockingly, they're also not happy with the fact that the French, like Norodom, governed in their own self-interest rather than that of the Cambodian people. So there's a simmering undercurrent of resentment. In 1907, Franco-Thai negotiations resulted in Thailand returning the areas of Batambong and Siem Reap, which had been annexed by Thailand back in 1795. This area includes the Angkor side, so Sisowath and his people are pretty happy to have it back. In 1926, King Monivong succeeds Sisowath as king. For the next few decades, the situation in Cambodia, and their resentment of the French, continues to simmer. The introduction of cars and typewriters at the beginning of the 20th century resulted in increased isolation between the French and the Cambodians. Because the French had neglected education, few Cambodians could write or prepare reports in French, leading to more Vietnamese workers being brought in to fill those spaces. Let's take a break here from politics to talk about Khmer literature during the 1920s, 30s and 40s. The French had very much neglected efforts to spread education in Cambodia, which was still, as it had been for centuries, predominantly in the hands of the Sangha, the Buddhist monastic orders. Before 1927, there were no Khmer language newspapers or journals. What literature that was printed was Buddhist texts and verse epics from the 19th century. In 1924, Suzanne Carpel published translations of six Pali tales from the Dhammapada. Afterward, she put forward a proposal for a national library that was quickly accepted, resulting in the creation of the Royal Library. The purpose of the library was the research, preservation, collection and reproduction of ancient manuscripts that were stored in the temples and homes of private citizens. Carpel became the director of the library, and later of the Buddhist Institute. And she helped set up some pretty impressive stuff. By 1927, the library was distributing books to bookstores established at four outlets, and between 1927 and 1930, it sold over 60,000 volumes. By 1930, they were also running a book bus that made monthly visits to all the provinces, and they had 57 provincial depots. In these places, people could either browse books for free or purchase them, and it offered ancient and modern works in Khmer, Siamese, Burmese, and French. The library's efforts to collect and document texts was helped by donations of books from delegates of monks, who travelled to the library to deposit Buddhist texts and ritual objects for safekeeping. 
One group of monks alone donated 233 manuscripts, along with other antique objects. The library also hired monks and scribes to copy onto palm leaves manuscripts that were falling apart or rare. John Dee would have liked Suzanne Carpel. Around that same time period, the Kambuja Surya, the Cambodian Sun, appears. It was a monthly journal and primarily focused on texts concerning the royal family, Buddhist literature, and folklore. A year later, another monthly periodical, the Suruk Khmer, is launched, and its circulation reaches 2000 in its first year. It has a simpler style than the Kambuja Surya, aiming to offer advice on topics such as farming, childcare, writing. It included news from Indochina, France, Cambodia, and also included Buddhist stories and poems. It also encouraged readers to submit their own letters and stories, and even offered a subscriber discount to temples and schools. By 1931, it had turned into a weekly production, sold advertising space, and became more like a newspaper. Now, that kind of publishing might make you think that literacy was rapidly increasing. It was not. It was increasing, but not that rapidly. And it was a lot higher among the young and the city dwellers. Out in the countryside, literacy rates were still incredibly low, and most people heard the newspapers as it was read out by a monk, rather than reading it themselves. In the late 30s and early 40s, original novels written in Khmer began to appear. Two of them have claims to being the first Khmer novel. The first is Rimkin's Sofat, written in 1938. It was first published in Vietnam in 1941, and wasn't available in Cambodia until 1942. It's in the mould of an archetypal romance, in the vein of what the excellent TV Tropes website calls the suddenly suitable suitor. She's an uptown girl, he's a poor boy. They love each other, but alas, their difference in wealth and status make their relationship untenable to those around them. But then, the boy discovers he's actually from a wealthy background, thus removing the obstacle to their romance. Please don't think I'm being disparaging of this plot or genre. It's the same plot Shakespeare uses in A Winter's Tale. It's Oscar Wilde's importance of being earnest. It's the recognition of Sakontala. It's not an uncommon feature in gothic novels. This is a pro-romance-as-proper-literature podcast. The other contender for first novel is Kim Hack's Dick Hanless Sap, or The Waters of Tonless Sap, which is also a romance. This one is published in 1939, when it was serialised across three issues of Kambuja Surya. So it was published later than Sohat, but published before in Cambodia itself. In his introduction, Kim Hak explains some of his motives for writing the novel. He's concerned about Khmer literature not being very advanced, and he talks about how few people there are who have a good understanding of Khmer literature, and how they only produce work to help spread Buddhism. I.e., he's concerned with a lack of written Khmer culture. Other cultures have an abundance of literature, and Cambodia does not. His reasons for writing the novel are wrapped up in an attempt to use modern writing techniques to establish a national identity that stretches back far into the past. In 1936, another newspaper began to print, the Nagaravata, or the Angkor Wat. It was founded by Pak Chuan, Sim Va, and Son Nok Tan, and it, and its journalists, especially Son Nok Tan, are at the heart of this story. 
Pan had been born in Vietnam and educated in France. He'd gone there to do a law degree, but never finished it. In 1933, he'd been employed by the Royal Library as a clerk. The three of them were at the nexus of Cambodia's literary and intellectual movement, and came into contact with scholars at various established institutes, the Sangha, and with those French scholars like Carpel. The newspaper's slant was, to start with, pro-Cambodian, whilst avoiding being anti-French, though it did criticise the French for being so slow to modernise Cambodia's education system. It voiced objections both to the domination of trade and commerce by Chinese businessmen and over the predominance of Vietnamese workers in the civil service. The paper also commented on the lack of suitable employment for educated Khmers, though by the end of the 1930s education had improved a little and there were more Khmers in administration positions. Over time, it developed stronger anti-Vietnamese and anti-colonial stances. As early as 1937, the Nagaravata was circulating around 5,000 copies. Penny Edwards asserts that Nagaravata is now widely regarded as the birth certificate of Cambodian nationalism. It presented a platform in which those Cambodians who could read and write, students, members of the Sangha, government officials and such, could discuss Cambodian national identity, their culture, their past and their future. The idea that the Nagaravata and other print publications would stop Cambodian culture and identity being forgotten or disappearing was frequently expressed. People are writing in, contributing to a growing picture of what Cambodian national identity should look like, what parts of the past were good, what parts of tradition were bad. So that's what's happening on the literature front. Let's get back to the international politics, because Unfortunately, in 1939, World War II happens, and Cambodia inevitably gets dragged into it. When France was captured by Germany in 1940, Cambodia came under the administration of the collaborationist Fiji French government, with support from Japan. For reasons that certainly had nothing to do with her being Jewish, or a woman doing better than her male counterparts, Suzanne Carpel, the one who helped found the Royal Library, was dismissed from her post. At the end of 1940, the pro-Japanese Thai government sees that France is pretty weak at the moment, and take the opportunity to invade Cambodia to take back the areas they had begrudgingly let go of in 1907. Thailand won on land, but France defeated them at sea. Japan then stepped in and imposed an armistice, and hosted negotiations that resulted in the Thais keeping most of the captured land, Batambong and most of Siem Reap. The French did manage to retain Angkor, though. This settlement is humiliating for King Monivong, and for the short remainder of his life, he refuses to meet with any French officials, or even speak to people in French. On the 24th of April, 1941, King Monivong dies, leaving an issue of succession. In the 1930s, Monivong's son, Moniret, had been the favourite for the throne but Norodom Sihanouk, grandson of Monivong, was also floated as a possibility by French officials. And in the end, it's Sihanouk that the Vichy rulers go for. He's crowned in October 1941, aged 18, because monarchies. Under Vichy rule, the government had a more ideological bent than previously, and it was pro-Axis powers. That's Germany, Japan and Italy. 
It also encouraged the nationalist identity based on the glory of the Angkor civilization. At this point, there were also around 8,000 Japanese troops stationed in Cambodia, and they had a certain degree of sympathy towards certain anti-colonial sentiments, which the educated few had picked up on, and the Nagaravata began to develop into an increasingly anti-colonial pro-Japan platform. This attitude was not appreciated by the French, who censored articles in over 30 issues, even censoring the lead editorial article in 10 issues. In 1942, something happens which gives them a specific person whose cause and plight they could champion. Hem Du, a monk who was teaching in Phnom Penh, was implicated in a vague plot to accomplish a coup. He had made a vague suggestion about it to some Cambodian militia, and evidently someone informed on him. This leads to the arrest of Hem Chiu and another monk on the 17th of July 1942. The arrest incensed his intellectual colleagues, especially because the civil authorities who arrested him hadn't allowed him to perform the ritual of leaving a monastic order. Over the next three days, anti-colonial groups, of which Son Nok Dan was a member, conduct secret negotiations with the Japanese, trying to secure their support for an anti-French demonstration planned for July the 20th. The demonstration was a march, around 10,000 strong, led by the editor of the Nagaravata, Pak Chuan. Song Nok Tan himself stayed hidden. The demonstrators marched to Phnom Penh, to the office of the resident supérieur, Jean Delu where Pak Chun tried to present him with a petition for the release of Hem Tzu, and was promptly arrested. Over the next few days, others who had been involved in the march were rounded up, and trials were quickly held. Son Nok Tan, who had also helped plan the demonstration, hid out in Phnom Penh for a few days before escaping to Patambang, then Bangkok, and finally to Tokyo, where the Japanese gave him a false name and government protection. Pak Chun was sentenced to death, but his sentence was then commuted by the Vichy government to life imprisonment. Hem Chu, by the way, did not get released, and died in 1943 on a French penal island. The arrest of Pak Chun and Tan's departure led to the shutting down of the Negaravata. The head of the Vichy government's Information, Press and Propaganda Department hoped that the readership would switch to the official newspaper, Kampuchea. Of course, when your newspaper is heavily censored and only able to report what a repressive government wants people to hear, along with the propaganda, it just doesn't tend to be as popular. By 1943, Kampuchea's readership just tipped over 1,700, compared to the 5,000 readers the Nagaravata had when it was shut down. The content of the Kampuchea was at best irrelevant to many Cambodians, at worst patronising propaganda by unpopular colonial overlords. And the French decided to do something else at this point which didn't help their popularity. They declared that Cambodians need to switch to the Roman alphabet. Instead of being written in their own alphabet, Khmer must be transliterated into an alphabet the French could read. The French essentially saw the difference in their alphabets as a sign of a Cambodian inferiority. The Roman alphabet is better, more sophisticated, and rational. And thus, forcing them to use the Roman alphabet would obviously be good for Cambodians and make them smarter and better. Shockingly, this doesn't go down well with the Sangha, 
since it's essentially a critique of their teaching methods and ability to teach well. The reforms weren't applied to religious texts, but government documents and schools now had to be transliterated. The policy was enforced aggressively through 1944-45. to At the same time, they also decided, for similar reasons, that the country needed to switch from the Buddhist lunar calendar to the Gregorian calendar. But these policies don't last long, because on the 9th of March, 1945, the Japanese forces stationed throughout Indochina disarmed the French soldiers and removed French officials from their government positions. They then asked Sihanouk to declare independence from France, which he did, changing the name from Cambodge, as the French had called it, to the Khmer pronunciation of the word, Cambodia. He also declares support for Japan. So, you know, totally independent and not just under the control of a different foreign power. Documents that would help us reconstruct what happened in 1945 are frustratingly patchy in places, but for the next seven months, Cambodia is, at least in name, independent. A new cabinet took office on the 9th, staffed with men loyal to the king. On the 13th of March, the king issued a proclamation that the French can keep their Latin alphabet and Gregorian calendar. The Cambodians are going back to their old systems, thank you very much. And in May, Sihanouk makes a speech declaring that French will gradually be phased out of the education system, and that eventually all teaching will be done in Khmer. Under pressure from monks and others who supported Song Nok Than, King Sihanouk petitions Japan for his return. And at the end of May, Tan returns from his exile and joins the new cabinet as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Despite the formation of this new cabinet, the majority of the power still remained with Sihanouk. In July, Sihanouk headed a rally held to commemorate the Monks' Rebellion and the March of 1942. He's joined by Pak Choen, the editor of the Nagaravata, who had fled the march and who had just been released from prison, and by Song Nok Tan. Someone, we don't know who, beyond the fact that it wasn't Sihanouk himself, gave a speech. It encouraged patriotism and stoked nationalist sentiment. It didn't directly criticise the monarchy, but it included plenty of examples of events where the nationalist and patriotic side had been anti-monarchy, and made heroes out of the rebels. Sihanouk responded by suppressing mention of those events for the rest of his reign, which kind of just makes sure the anti-monarchy types remember them. Two months later, on the 10th of August, several young members of the Cambodian militia stormed the palace in the early morning. They demanded that Sihanouk dissolve the current cabinet and abdicate, which he did. And most of the former ministers, barring Song Nok Tan, were imprisoned. This coup had the support of both Japan, Tan, the Sangha, and many students. The students that supported the coup to the extent that, on the night, 50 students had gathered next to the palace ready to join in if need be. Five days later, Tan took office as the first Prime Minister of Cambodia. His new cabinet included Pak Chun. Tan was probably okay with the coup because his colleagues in the cabinet were all pro-French. Tan alone was of a more reformist, anti-colonial bent. For some reason, this event also made Tan unpopular with Sihanouk. I guess being a teenager woken up in the middle of the night by armed men demanding you dissolve your cabinet will do that to you. 
it also made him unpopular with some other members inside his new cabinet, in particular the Defence Minister Kim Tit. Despite supporting the coup, Tan immediately freed the former government cabinet ministers and had seven members of the coup arrested. I would suggest it's a possibility that he did this to try and improve Siamuk's opinion of him. But if it was, it didn't work. But in August, something happens that makes short work of Tan's new government. World War II ends. And France decides it wants Indochina back. And on the 22nd of August, an Allied plane drops leaflets proclaiming the imminent return of the French. Because the French had hoarded power for themselves and neglected to train any Cambodians on how various aspects of government should work, there were very few specific policies or plans from the interregnum cabinets, which extended to a lack of any firm idea of how to deal with the possibility of French return. In response to this threat, Tan does two things. Firstly, on the 3rd of September, he declares there's going to be a referendum on the issue of Cambodian independence. There wasn't actually any time to hold a referendum, but that didn't stop Tan declaring the results. Supposedly, 541,000 men between the age of 18 and 60 had voted for independence. For added effect, there were two invalid ballots. Secondly, he approached both the Thai government and the Viet Minh for support, but fails to form any alliances that could help. Without support, the French easily moved in and reclaimed the country, reinstalling themselves in positions of power. Now, brace yourselves, because a lot of things are going to happen in a very short span of time. On the 15th of October... 1945, General Leclerc and two officers arrived in Phnom Penh to arrest Song Ngoc Dan, a decision that was supported by the French forces in Vietnam, several French officials in Cambodia, and even Tan's own Minister of Defence, who had flown to Saigon to request the French return. Conveniently, Sihanouk was away on pilgrimage on that day. On the 17th of October, it was announced that Tan had been arrested on the grounds that his intrigues were not in the best interest of either Cambodia or the Allied forces. Tan was sentenced at a court in Saigon to 20 years imprisonment. He was released after 17 months, and with the assistance of the French government, was resettled in France with his two wives and seven children. Tan was replaced as PM on the same day he was arrested by Prince Moniret. Moniret and his cabinet knew that Cambodia wasn't in a position to gain independence or fight off the French, but they also didn't want things to go back to exactly how they'd been before. So they do pretty much the only thing they can do, and get the French to actually have a discussion with them about what will happen to Cambodia going forward. Oh, and the editor of the Negaravata, and Tan's friend and fellow minister for a while, Pak Chun, fled when Tan was arrested in October of 1945, and escaped to Vietnam. He joins up with an anti-colonial group known as the Khmer Isarak, which had originally been created in 1940 by Pok Khan. Chun set up a new committee under them. Unfortunately for him, the committee only lasts four months because the French re-established control of the border area the committee operated from. Pak Chun surrendered to the French in April 1946, shortly after another committee member. Other committee members joined the Viet Minh or the Isarak. But that's April, and a bunch of other stuff has already happened by then. Most notably, in January, 
Monirat and his cabinet reach an agreement with the French resulting in a modus vivendi being signed. It's basically an agreement about how they're going to proceed, including the French acknowledging the king's authority when it came to internal administration affairs, and the Cambodians allowing the French to appoint a high commissioner and post advisers in both ministerial and provincial positions. It provided for a Cambodian constitution being written, and the formation of political parties by Cambodians. They also pushed to get back Battambong and Siem Reap, which the Japanese had decided Thailand could keep when they invaded in 1941. In Phnom Penh, in March 1946, about a month before Pak Chun's surrender, the Democratic Party was founded by Prince Yutafong, who had recently returned from finishing his education in France and was enamoured with Western-style democracy of the time, and ran on a platform of getting independence as soon as possible. This is the biggest force opposing the French. There were a couple of other political parties, but we don't need to talk about them for now. Yutavong's Democratic Party attracted the kind of people who had been drawn to Song Nok Tan, Pak Chun, and the slam to the Nagaravata. They also had the support of quite a lot of monks and students and Cambodia's intellectual community. In September of 1946, elections are held to elect members of the Consultative Assembly that will advise Sihanouk regarding the drafting of the constitution. The voter turnout was just over 60%, and the Democratic Party wins fairly decisively, gaining 50 of the 67 seats available. The result rather upset Sihanouk, who saw it as a personal attack. A party critical of the French and wanting independence was implicitly critical of his rule. But, having decisively won, the Democratic Party set about drafting a constitution. Meanwhile, in the anti-colonialist groups in the countryside, and the communist groups lurking over the border in Vietnam and Thailand, a group called the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, the ICP, are taking steps to try and help the anti-French movement. The ICP had been founded in the 1930s, and its original intent had been to help spread communism throughout Southeast Asia. But, especially in Cambodia, where the prominence of Buddhism dampened support for communism, they hadn't made much progress. That changes when the first Indochina war starts, as countries resist France's attempt to return. The Viet Minh are getting arms and support from Bangkok, but to get them back to Vietnam, they either have to go through Cambodia or skirt around its coast. Suddenly, they're a lot more interested in making friends with movements in Cambodia. But the dearth of communist groups mean that instead they turn to anti-French nationalist groups like the Khmer Issarak. In October 1946, they recruit a former Buddhist monk by the name of Song Not Min and make him president of a group they helped set up, the Cambodian People's Liberation Committee. The monk's real name, according to the French at the time, was Pam Van Hoa, though contemporary opinion is that it was Akar Min. But as president of the new committee, he was known as Song Nok Min, which, you might notice, is a rather similar name to Song Nok Tan, almost like they might have picked it in order to attract the support of those who admired Tan. Throughout 1946, the representatives from Thailand and Cambodia had been negotiating over Battenbong and Siem Reap over in America. Between American pressure to return them and Thailand's desire to join the UN, they agree to let Cambodia have the two provinces in December. This is what Moniret, the guy who took over as PM after Song Nok Tan was arrested, was doing for most of the year, which means he missed the elections. He, 
like Sihanouk, isn't happy with the result, and actually refuses to step down for a few months, claiming that there's no one suitable to head the new government. In fact, Sihanouk even asks him to try and form another government in December, but he fails, and the new government convenes in January of 1947. Meanwhile, hiding out in Bangkok, the leaders of the Khmer Isarak, and their counterparts the Leo Isara, an equivalent group working against French colonial rule in Laos, worked on a memorandum to the UN Secretary-General, requesting help in their quest for independence. They give it to the American representative in Bangkok in early January of 1947. The representative sends word to Washington, urging them to get the UN to discuss it urgently, before the situation in Southeast Asia became even more complicated and messy. But the Americans decide they don't want anyone to get involved, and tell him to give the memorandum back unopened. When the government in Phnom Penh convened in January, one of the first things they do is offer amnesty to the Isarak, which, also not popular with Sihanouk or the French. In March that year, in a move that certainly had nothing at all to do with French resentment of the power of the Democratic Party, 17 members of the party were arrested by the French. They were accused of being members of a super-secret pro-Japanese group called the Black Star, which didn't exist. In July of 1947, Yusufong, leader of the Democratic Party, dies aged 34. Sihanouk takes the opportunity to replace Yutevong's cabinet with an interim group. Despite this, the Democrats still win the next election, in December that year, with ease. The new government convenes in January 1948, with Oi Kuz, the Democratic Party's successor to Yutevong, as president, and a man called Chien Vam as prime minister. Meanwhile, on the 1st of February that year, the Isarak rebels formed the Khmer People's Liberation Committee, the KPLC, led by a guy called Dat Chuan. He wasn't so much a left-wing nationalist as a traditional warlord, but there were notable elements within the committee that were left-wing nationalists. In May of 1948, Sihanouk and his PM, Chiam Van, go to Paris. Sihanouk enrolled in some school courses, and Chien Van tried to negotiate, fruitlessly, with the French about Cambodian independence. When Van gets back to Cambodia, he discovers that excrement has hit a propeller-based object. Several Democratic Party members were implicated in a scandal involving illicit trade in violation of tariffs. The vice president of the assembly, who was one of the implicated men, retired. Van requests full powers to investigate the issue and have the governmental immunity of those implicated suspended. Weirdly, the Assembly rejects the request. Can't arrest a sitting member of a 1947 Cambodian Assembly. Unable to do anything about the corruption, especially after the Commissioner of the Police, Yem Sambor, destroys the files containing the evidence, Van resigned in August 1948. At the same time as Van resigns, two new political parties form. One of them is called the Khmer Renovation Society, formed by a group of men including a guy named Lon Nol. Their party was pro-monarchy and thus obviously had the favour of the king. In November, Sambor and 11 deputies from the Democratic Party defected to the more loyalist Liberal Party. 
In January of 1949, Sambor manages to take down the current government. The Sihanouk insists that Sambor become the Prime Minister. The Democratic Party, however, refused to work with him. Around the same time, Sambor and Sihanouk open secret negotiations with a certain warlord and extend the amnesty open to the Isarak. Which is our cue to jump back to what's been happening on the rebel side of things. If you remember, in February 1948, the Isarak rebels had formed the KPLC, the Khmer People's Liberation Committee. They were led by a guy called Dap Chuan. In 1949, the KPLC becomes the Khmer National Liberation Committee, the KPNC. What can I say? Left-wing nationalists love a committee. A new committee of seven men is elected in January, headed by Dap Chuan. Because Dap Chuan is a warlord, rather than a left-wing nationalist, he has a rather authoritarian leadership style, which quickly alienates the other members of the committee. And without that left-wing nationalist loyalty, Chuan is quite happy to defect to another side, should it suit him. In July of that year, elections within the KNLC result in Chuan being replaced as leader by Pok Kang, the guy who had originally founded the first Isarat committee back in 1940. So, Dao Chuan is the guy Sihanouk and Sambor are negotiating with in 1949. He defects to their side in September, taking hundreds of soldiers with him. Also in September, Sambor gives up on trying to have a functioning government with the Democratic Party, who are threatening huge political upheaval and asks Sihanouk to exercise his constitutional power to dissolve the government, which he does. Sihanouk selects a new cabinet, which, of course, is filled with people loyal to him. Unfortunately for him, the constitution also requires that, should the king dissolve the assembly, new elections must be held within two months. Which Sihanouk and Samor do not want. The Democrats might win again. So instead, they say that the elections can't be held because the state of affairs in the countryside is so bad that they wouldn't be able to safely open polling stations there. Which was fair. By early 1949, the king and the French were dealing with around 10,600 rebels in the countryside, and bandits were roaming freely too. So they do what is obviously the only thing they can do, and postpone the elections indefinitely. This is not a popular move among pro-Democratic Party students, who stage a protest towards the end of 1949. There's one other thing that happens in 1949 that's relevant to this story. Sihanouk grants an audience to a group of students who were recipients of some government-granted bursaries to go and study in Paris, one of whom was a young man named Solothsaw. If all of that was hard to follow in a super confusing mess. Just imagine what it was like actually living in the countryside in Cambodia at this point. Dangerous and confusing. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. Rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. I'm not going to make a promise about when the next episode will be, but I'm hoping it will be in, you know, like about a week's time. If you have questions, comments, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, start your own newspaper about the podcast and invite other listeners to submit their opinions. 
Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if the sources are publicly available, they are linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that holds the controversial opinion that colonialism is not great. The voice in your ears has been a member of a grand total of zero committees.